The Cuban sandwich is more than just bread, sliced ham, pork, Genoa salami, and whatever other accoutrements your personal tradition might include in its recipe. It symbolizes so many narrative threads in history, politics, cultural migration, and economics. Join us for a delectable and mouthwatering conversation with culinary historians Andy Hughes, special collections librarian at University of South Florida, who we're welcoming back to the clubhouse, Barbara Cruz, professor of social science education at USF, and Jeff Houck, president of marketing for the Columbia Restaurant Group. Their book, The Cuban Sandwich, A History in Layers, recently won a gold medal at the Florida Book Awards, and in addition to making you hungry, it might give you a new perspective on the forces that shaped the sandwich and its consumption and availability, both in Cuba and in the United States. You'll learn about Tampa's La Segunda Bakery, Jeff's employer, the Columbia Restaurant, stories of exile and diaspora, and the growing popularity of the sandwich in the United States. I'm Christopher Nank, and welcome to the Florida Book Club. I'm here with Andy Hughes, Barbara Cruz, and Jeff Houck, authors of the delicious culinary history, The Cuban Sandwich, A History in Layers. Andy, welcome back to the clubhouse, and uh, Barbara, Jeff, uh, welcome for the first time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. All right. Now, um, uh, Andy and I had a conversation a couple of years ago where um, I think this project was incubating, so to speak, and uh, it was it was sort of an idea that was drifting around. But um, but now that it's off the press, you know, it's a horrible pun, but uh, I'll uh, I'm allowing myself that. I'm curious how it came about just as a collaboration between all three of you. Yeah, it kind of began a long time ago. I I, um, I, I was interested in the sandwich for a long time and um, really wanted to to do something I wasn't sure it was going to be an article or a book, but once I started to gather enough stuff in my research, I, I thought it was pretty big and I needed a, a good team to help round out the book. Um, in particular, you know, I, I focused a lot on the history. I needed some people to really help document the present of the sandwich. And so, you know, um, I've known Jeff and Barb for a long time. Both of them um, are fellow sandwich obsessives. And, um, you know, so, I, I thought they were great to get involved. So I, I talked to Barbara first and then Jeff and um, and then the team was complete. Yeah. So then, so when Andy approached me, um, one of the things that he was real interested in doing and that he does so well is that he really plums the depths of, of archives. And so he was looking at a lot of material from the 1800s and early 1900s. Um, some of which came from the island of Cuba, some uh, published in Spanish. And so it is my native tongue. And so I was able to jump on board and and help, you know, with that aspect of it. Um, and then also we have a number of profiles of artisans, of craftspeople who really take the sandwich very seriously. So we also divvied up those interviews. And so I was able to chat with individuals who either spoke only Spanish or were bilingual or bicultural. And being Cuban myself, um, it was just a real special treat. Not to mention the fact that these two guys are, you know, just a lot of fun to be with. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was invited by Andy to join uh, he and Barb in the adventure. And as um, not to repeat what Andy said, but he and I crossed paths in Tampa because uh, people who love food tend to swim in the same uh, fishbowl. And and um, if you love Tampa, you obviously love all the variations and permutations of the Cuban sandwich and are kind of fascinated about the choices that are made between the bun. 
um, between the loaf, between the bun sounds far worse than that. But the um, but the whole idea is that uh, we all understood that there was a depth to the sandwich. That um, yes, there there were stories to be told through the ingredients, but you know, and the sandwich is an inanimate object that's made by humans, and humans would make uh, for compelling reading when you kind of dig down and ask them about you know how they made the choices they made and what was the background behind them. So I was thrilled to join the project. Yeah, all three of you, I think, kind of allude to like um, how you build narratives out of this, the storytelling. And I'll tell you, one of the best things I liked about this book, all the old ads and sandwich menus, those told, I think, so I thought some great stories. So uh, mm-hmm. we found those. And and Barbara, you uh, alluded to uh, all the people you got to talk to, artisans, chefs and, and people in there. So, uh, yeah, I... Uh, you kind of preempted my next question as, you know, self-described sandwich obsessives, you know, Andy mentioned that. And that, that phrase also appears in the uh, <laughs> intro of the book. Um, so I was I, I was actually curious what the most enjoyable part of the uh, book's creation was to all of you. But uh, uh, it seems it seems like to, to a degree you answered that already. But was there anything that stood out to you as as being particularly notable or enjoyable or something, a new discovery that you may have made that you uh we're particularly sort of touched by, I guess. I think one uh, one thing to consider is that we got the green light to do this book in March of 2020 when the lockdown started. Oh. So I had, you know, I had visions of my head of of traveling, <laughs> of going to various restaurants, etc., interviewing people in person. None of that stuff happened. <laughs> so, um, but what I did find was that our regular meetings around the book and the project were were just a great lifeline in a time when, you know, I live alone. I was locked down, mm. not seeing a lot of people. Um, so those were always really something to look forward to. And I always had a feeling of kind of, uh, you know, celebratory feeling to them. So for me, that was that was a really important aspect of it, not just of this project, but of the lockdowns in, you know, 2020. And, and, you know, I was going to say, Chris, with respect to being a sandwich obsessive. So that phrase for me only applies more recently. And and I'll tell you why, because I, I am Cuban. So I grew up, you know, with the, with the sandwich always in the background. Right. It was it was something that I had when I went with my dad, you know, on Saturday morning to the lumber store or it was when I would go to a restaurant uh, at night after the movie theater and I was a teenager. Right. Or, or we went to a birthday party and they had a platter of them or, you know, that kind of thing. So I never really thought much about them, about the Cuban sandwich until I moved to Tampa. And then. Uh, that's really when the interest started, because first of all, when I, I remember rolling into town and seeing these signs everywhere that said hot pressed Cubans. And I just thought that was such a weird expression. <laughs> I never had seen that before in Miami. And I had my first bite. Um, the bread was different. Uh, uh, there was general salami that I was not used to. Now I was smitten from the first bite. And that's really where I started to realize, oh, so they're not all the same. And, you know, how did this happen? And so that's really kind of, you know, what spurred my interest. And then in terms of what Andy was saying, I agree with him that our, our, our regular meetings were amazing. I always learned so much from both of them. But also when I got to interview the artisans, the care, the thought, the passion that they put into their work was really heartening. 
I don't know. I the uh, in addition to working with Barb and uh, and Andy, um, you know, I I'm a big fan of proving to myself that I really kind of know nothing, and <laughs> this was such a, a discovery for me because I thought I knew the sandwich, and um, you know, Andy's depth of research, and then Barbara's uh, you know full flavors of that story that she brought to it. Um, you know, it just it 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 was a, a nice moment where I, I got to learn about something that I thought I was fairly well educated on, and from whatever I knew started basically to be the trunk of what became the rest of the tree of the story. You know, we uh we did a, I did a reading this weekend during a festival in Ybor City, and it's called Fiesta Days. They've been having it for seventy three years. And I was a guest lector where I could read the book out loud as people passed by on the street. And to read this history back to people, it kind of stopped them a little. All I had to do was say sandwich and people would stop. <laughs> All I had to say was Cuban and they'd stop for like a minute or two. Um, but, you know, the, it's such a great story that people were like, where, where did you get that book? And I'm like, hey, here you go. Yeah, the, it, what you mentioned, Jeff, is was really interesting. Is that people like to talk about food and read about food? I've noticed. Uh, you know, it's it's a subject that everyone's interested in to some degree or another. Like you said, about all you have to do is say sandwich or Cuban, and people will, you know, we're interested at least. You know, uh, uh, initially, you know, you'd, you'd spark that interest. And what I think was what was really revealing about this book to me is that it ended up being as much a history of Cuba and its ties to Florida and and to the United States in general, as to the sandwich itself. And, and you know, someone alluded to the idea that, you know, the sandwich is just a, a creation made by human beings. And, you know, it ended up being a story as much of those of those people in those cultures. And and I'm assuming that was intentional. But I mean, I, I would think like, was that a theme, though, that emerged as you were writing, researching and talking to people? And, and I was I was really curious, like, how was it that this sandwich in particular became a symbol of that history, that syncretic relationship? between Florida and, and Cuba. And the, as I alluded to the United States and Cuba. Right. I mean, for me, it was definitely a, a conscious decision to put Cubans back into the story of the Cuban sandwich. I felt like it had really been hijacked by Florida and the kind of the chambers of commerce here, kind of bickering about <laughs> it between Tampa, Miami, and to a lesser extent Key West. And I also felt like the conversation had really run its course and it never really shed much light on the sandwich itself you know it created more heat than light so um so it was really important to me to to to, to try to trace it back to cuba i mean that at least that's what the research found now no one would have been happier than me if it was like oh it's <laughs> a better than tampa <laughs> great print it um but instead it's it's much more complicated it's it's like a family story and you know i rather than look at it as a sandwich i like to look at it as more like a family and that different people crossed over at different places at different times and they adapted to different environments um you know and different people so uh um so i think that's a maybe a little more philosophical way to look at it um but then you know the rest of it too i think is you know the as i mentioned in the introduction it's kind of like the 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 bread of the of the the, the book if the book is a sandwich is is the history it holds it all together um and that uh 
Yeah, I felt like it was important to to trace that story all the way through, you know, not just in Cuba, but in Florida as well. But uh, but, you know, putting Cubans at, at the at the forefront of the development of their own sandwich, because I felt like there's a lot of you know stories over time where it was like it was kind of put together by committee and Cubans weren't mm-hmm. really present um, and that everything in the Cuban sandwich represents someone else. So. I guess that's uh, um, where I was coming from with it. And, you know, also, I do feel like, yes, people love to read about food. And I've always thought of food as a great Trojan horse. Mm, good for like, you know, people, are, yeah, people are reading about food, but they're learning about history, too. And I've always felt like that food is really a very effective um, kind of vehicle to talk about other things and, and deeper issues than just the recipe and you know that's uh one of the things that really frustrates me a lot is that you know the cuban sandwich can be condensed down to three or four lines of a mm-hmm. recipe you know slice a ham slice a salami or whatever um and uh i just yeah, i just think that's really reductive and and doesn't it gives no uh, hint at what made the sandwich great well and you know it's certainly the the the, the concept or processes of immigration you know, had so much to do with the sandwich, whether, you know, we're talking about during the Spanish-American War, you know, the Cuban, you know, war for independence, um, or we're talking about exiles in Miami, or we're talking about Cuban cigar workers coming to Tampa. I mean, all of those migratory patterns have, are intimately tied to the development of the sandwich and and how it has weaseled its way into the hearts of so many people. Um, But then you've got to go outside of Florida. You've got to go up to New York and New Jersey. You've got to go to, uh, you know, out West. Just this morning, Jeff and Andy will corroborate this, that uh, one of our graduate students is visiting family in North Carolina. And she stopped at a Cuban cafe there and snapped a picture of herself next to our Cuban sandwich book, which the, 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 the proprietor of the restaurant has on the counter. Um, and it just goes to show you, I mean, it's, it just, it's, it's diffuse now. And, and it just as the Cuban people are. Yeah. It's, it's funny because we, we get these snapshots from people um, in places that aren't known for Cuban sandwiches. And so you, you know, it kind of hints at the life that the the sandwich has apart and away from whatever anybody thinks it, uh, of uh, the supposed history in Tampa and Miami. It's really the the third the third rail of food is arguing about which which place came up with it first, and the book really was an answer of neither mm-hmm. because yeah. that's not where the Cubans were, and the Cubans, you know, they they brought their food with them, um, especially to Ybor City as they tried to recreate um, their life in Havana in this company town called Ybor City. And, you know, you don't, you don't just leave your foodways behind. That's the thing that makes it feel like home. Um, and so it sort of, it followed as the people went, and now it's following along as, uh, as people migrate around the world and, to, and adapt the sandwich to wherever they're living. That's great. I, I, and I'll tell you, this book did sort of... Uh, explode my notions of of cuban sandwiches for me just uh as you alluded to i was i was kind of stuck in that binary 
Tampa or Miami origin. And I know Andy a couple of years ago alluded to this, that, he, you know, he suspected that there was more to it than that, too, and that that was really kind of an oversimplified view of it. But one thing that I, I and, and yeah, I, I also agree with you. I was in Las Vegas maybe 10 years ago, and I was surprised to see my my friend got a Cuban sandwich in a casino there. And then he was like, oh, no, these are the best. They're great. And I was like, I so rarely had seen Cuban sandwiches outside of Florida. Like it was very rare, you know, uh, in past decades. So uh, I guess you never you never forget your first casino. Cuban. I got to tell you, <laughs> it was strange. And Vegas is a strange time. Maybe I don't understand the town that well. It's it's very different. But um, yeah, I am. Um, but it also one of the things that was really, really intriguing to me to read was just that how much the, um, you know, the kind of agreed upon in its in its larger outlines, the agreed upon ingredients of the sandwich as it exists now in Florida. You know, the we don't have to get into the salami debate, I suppose, but it's like in broad strokes, the they're very similar in composition. But I loved reading about how that had not been its case, the case throughout a lot of its history, just the meats, even the bread. I think uh, you may have alluded in there to some places advertising uh, wheat loaf as as the uh, the bread that it was used. And it seemed that from it's gone through so many permutations from neighborhood to neighborhood or even establishment to establishment that it's its current iterations, which which, you know, to me, seem they're very similar for the most part. Um, they seem like kind of an unsettled upon conclusion. And uh and and as you uh, kind of allude to later on, in its current form, it's a diaspora food, that it was not uh, in the forms that it exists now and how people understand the ingredients of a Cuban sandwich. That was, you know, it was not that written in stone or settled upon in, in a lot of its early iterations. So um, I don't know. Can you comment on that? It's just fascinating how the composition of the sandwich over the decades in a lot of these areas seem to have have had a lot to do with supply and demand and politics and displacement. I mean, and uh, I don't know, just so many of the stories that were told in there. So uh, I don't know. Can you comment on that a little? Just the the specific like the specificity of the current ingredients, which, um, you know, as I said, the, the book makes seem like just sort of consensus now uh, as far as, um, you know, the bread, the pork, the um, ham and maybe the salami, you know, <laughs> and the Swiss and everything. But um what was that? What was that interesting learning about that, though, just that it was a lot of these places like that they had such distinctive, you know, even in very small areas or establishments having different, you know, versions of the sandwich that we might not a lot of when I say we, you know, the dining public might not even recognize as a Cuban sandwich. And I'm sorry for that rambling paragraph. Long <laughs> question. Well, I, I guess for me, I'd like to just start by, you know, talking about. We, you know, I um, we discuss Ahiaco in the book, you know, the Cuban stew, and it's, it's kind of primordial identity for Cuba, you know, um, derived from enslaved populations, the Spanish and the natives, and that the Cuban sandwich really embodies more of a modern Cuba of, you know, the individual, not a, a collective pot, you know, um, of being mobile, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think, you know, first of all, you know, as just a package, it sort of embodies something different. But that, you know, on the one hand, you know, there's a lot of strange sounding ingredients that were put in it over the years. But on the other hand, it is pretty, uh, you know, it's pretty durable in its in its creation that you always have ham on it. You know, so there's, I, I don't know if we saw any without, um, but sometimes instead of pork or in addition to pork, you'll have turkey. So, you know, it's really not that 
you know, I, I don't think it's as radical. Um, you know, there's a lot of times you find like a hard chorizo, sopracetta, salami. Those are all similar, you know, type things. So it's a mix, though, but it's got a lot of the similar things. I think the strangest thing we found was like pate, a reference to pate. Um, so, you know, but for me, you know, you think about something that developed over more than 100 years and that's remarkably resilient, you know, just, you know, and then we finally kind of agreed upon, you know, landed on this version is kind of interesting, too, is this, you know, people talked about Akiyako is as, as, as stew that can, you know, um, it can simmer forever. Theoretically, you can just keep throwing stuff in it and that. You know, the Akiyako like Cuba is never quite complete. It's never, it's always, it's always evolving, you know, and the, the flavors are, you know, suffusing and everything. Um, and I, you know, so it's interesting that the Cuban sandwich is still something that isn't completely agreed upon either, you know, and that, you know, maybe there has to be a free Cuba to, you, you know, make a uniform sandwich, or maybe, uh, maybe it's just a, a great symbol of the spirit of the Cuban people that, you know, people have strong opinions and they're they're willing to, to go their own way. So. Yeah, because one of the things that I found when I was interviewing folks is that even if you agree on the basic ingredients, there's still even variation within those basic ingredients, right? So like the pork, for example. I spoke with a couple of people who uh, own restaurants in Miami, for example. Um, one said it has to be a pork roast taken from the shoulder, which means imagine like pulled pork, right? So it's going to be wetter, it's going to be shredded, right? And that's the kind of pork that is used. And he was adamant about it. Then again, I interviewed someone else also with a restaurant in Miami. He says, absolutely not. It's got to come from the leg. It's got to be kind of like from the, you know, the ham of the, of the animal, in which case, um, so that it's a deli. So it's a deli ham. So it's so you can use a slicer on it so that it has to be clean slices. None of the shredded stuff, you know. So even on something like that, um, the Swiss cheese, for example, there's variety there. Um, the mustard, there's variety. Uh, certainly the bread, of course you know but even the pickles how many pickles the placement of the pickles you know i mean it gets down to that kind of minutiae and if most people when you push a little bit will tell you exactly why it is that this method is better than that method why they prefer this to the other in other words they've thought this through this is not by happenstance this is very much very intentional how about that? that? That's a word that I would use for sure. Um, Jeff can talk about that certainly with his experience in assembly. You know, I worked for the Columbia restaurant that's been making the same sandwich recipe since at least 1915 that they can document. And the architecture matters, especially to our fourth generation owner, Richard Gonsmart. And he remade the sandwich a couple of years ago because someone had told him that it wasn't any good anymore. It wasn't as good as it used to be. And he went back and found that over decades and decades and decades, there have been shortcuts for efficiency or cost or availability, um, and the, the 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 recipe had changed. So he went back and he spent about thirty five thousand dollars to buy new equipment and research everything. He tasted twenty eight different types of mustard to come up with French's yellow mustard, which was what they were already using. But he, the point is, he went to all of those links, and what he realizes that how you build a sandwich matters if you put you you split the loaf on the bottom no mayonnaise no sauce no anything you just put roast pork then you put ham then you put i mean i'm sorry what did i say 
oh my god i'm gonna get fired you start out with ham start out with ham then you put the roast pork then you put the salami has to be genoa salami with black peppercorns which you can only import because they don't make it in the domestic uh operations here anymore um on top of that you put swiss cheese and then two pickles per hemisphere mustard on the roof of the of the inside of the loaf so that when you bite down it blooms on the roof of your mouth and not coat your tongue so you can't taste anything else you cut it on a bias in a triangle so that as you're eating it you know you start from the pointy end and it makes it easier to consume i have i have seen people attack it from the blunt end of the sandwich which is fine but i've also seen people attack it like a harmonica which is should be punishable um but it, you know there's a mechanic to enjoying the sandwich more that if you pay attention to it it's about eight recipes in one you know we make our own roast pork we make our own ham um you know there's a uh, a gentleman in the book andrew tambuzo who we write about who makes his own salami i know almost nobody who goes to that length um he's a third generation tampa butcher so he has that av availability to do that but he's he he took about four years to come up with his recipe and it's because it matters. What it says matters. What it says about your restaurant and your menu matters. The lengths that you're willing to go to for quality. Um, but you know how you how you approach the sandwich pretty much tells you everything you need to know. If you're buying a Cuban sandwich for let's say now with inflation under eight bucks, you're going to get that much value and flavor. It's okay. I've eaten them. I'll eat them all day long. I will not turn my nose up at it. Um, but at the same time, I know that if I'm buying a 14, 15 or $16 sandwich that somebody had better go to the lengths that I expect to get the full flavor potential of the sandwich. Um, you know, a lot of places don't have the glorious blessing of being, uh, uh, you know, having La Segunda Central Bakery Cuban bread as, uh, as the basis for everything. Everybody wants to argue about salami. I argue about the bread. Without that bread, it is an entirely different experience. If you go to Miami, there's a thin eggshell crust. It's lovely, but they got to butter it and press the hell out of it to get anywhere close to the crunchy crispiness and tenderness of the Tampa loaf, which does not need to be pressed. People don't always like to have their sandwich pressed. Um, you know, it's just each each part of each ingredient works in in uh, in symphony. And you know what the book talks about is. You know, back in the day, no. first of all, nobody was sitting there saying, we're going to invent a sandwich. Somebody write all this down so somebody one day can write a book about it. But the other part of it is, you know, as Andy points out very wisely, um, anything more than one protein uh, is a sandwich for rich people. You know, it, it, you know, there's there's various parts of it in chapter three of the book where we write about how when the sandwich started to be picked up by Anglos and put in magazines and stuff. Sometimes they put mayonnaise on it. Sometimes they put lettuce on it. You know, everybody's trying to find their entry point to make it something that's more acceptable. But the the durable recipe of the sandwich is basically a combination of sweet and salty meats, creamy cheese, tangy pickles, that mustardy, vinegary kind of relief to it, crunchy, tender. I mean, that that is, I don't know another sandwich that delivers that. I, I got to go to the Reuben, but that's only about three ingredients you know, four ingredients. This is a, this is a hard sandwich. If you've ever, if you ever try and make one at home and I do not suggest it, um, Andy has done it. I will never do it. Uh, I tried to make the bread once and it came out tasting fine, but looking like some sort of hate crime. I will tell you this, this is a, 
This is a social sandwich. This is a, sa a sandwich that's meant to be enjoyed in social settings because each one has its own little magnificent little difference, hopefully. And it's to be enjoyed with other people. All right. I don't think anyone at your uh, anyone overheard you uh, making that slip up at the beginning. He did a he did a good job of towing the company line there on the assembly of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, I, I have back noticed it's interesting what you say about the bread because it, you did uh, you guys wrote at some point that uh, in the mid twentieth century Miami bakers would order bread from Tampa from uh, yeah. Lesigandis. So I mean, yeah, the, the as you said, the bread itself is a uh, you know an interesting story there. What you don't want to do is when you have multiple layers of the bread, when you talk about the architecture and the science, and I can nerd out about all this all day long, what you don't want, and if you've ever had a poorly constructed burger, you don't want the layers to kind of go like this and start <clears throat> sliding on each other or pulling apart. If the bread's too hard to bite through, it'll be it'll be work, and you don't want work. You want it to be easy. Um, and the 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 pandagua, the wonderful bread that they make at, at La Segunda, um, is such an amalgam of simple ingredients and handmade artisan craftsmanship that it's just it's it's irreplaceable i love the fact that it isn't any good for more than 24 hours and then after that it's bread pudding and bread crumbs um i love the fact that there's a there is a limited window of of freshness to it because it, it forces you to be uh, attentive to those needs mm. Well said. Yeah, we didn't really we touched a little bit on this. I mean, we've been talking in broad strokes about cultural history, but politically, too, there was a a great passage in there, uh, you know, during the um, the the Castro Cuban revolution in the late 50s, where uh, you mentioned that the, the Castro regime never embraced the Cuban sandwich, I think, was a line that was directly out of there. And it it, it talked a little bit like I think more symbolically about, uh, you know, like, like it, it seemed to me, my impression was that it came to symbolize something apart from just culinary culture or or, or traditions. And it, be, it it became a symbol of of exile or a symbol of like a certain kind of uh, lifestyle. Was it was that intentional or am I was I misreading that? <laughs> I think I, I found that to be a really striking part of the book. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the. The sandwich, you know, is born with the Republic, you know, um, it, it will always be associated, you know, with, um, you know, with the, early, the the years of the Republic, you know, until it was overthrown by Castro or we're really Batista before that. But we don't want to get into the, the weeds of the Cuban politics. But um, uh, so, yeah, I think it was always associated with the Republic and with capitalism and with, um, you know, Right about it, early in the century, it was a treat for you know the wealthy for the most part. Um, you know, it, it democratized over time, but uh, you know, and it's also it's a it's a symbol of um, yeah. Like I said earlier, it's it's your private sandwich. It's mobile. It's for typically for one person. You might eat it in the company of others, but you know, um, so I, I think it's counter revolutionary in a lot of different ways. You know, and so much of the food of the Cuban Republic and even before that was really jettisoned over time as, you know, um, conditions deteriorated in Cuba. And so, you know, now it's where we've got, you know, young generations of Cuba who may not have ever tasted a Cuban sandwich. Remember what it was like at all. Maybe Barbara, can you uh, speak to more of that? Yeah. And I, and I think Andy too, um, 
you know, when you mentioned, you know, the, the people that would eat this, you know, especially in the first half of the 20th century, um, think about it. It's folks after they had gone to the theater or, um, you know, maybe at La Tropicana when you're taking in a dinner and a show, you know, um, or, you know, any of a number of venues like that, that in many ways were very much associated with the Batista government. Right. So you can see where Castro and the new revolution coming in, they're going to eschew that. They're going to turn away from that. It's it's not going to be something that they're going to embrace. And I still have cousins and other family members on the island who have never had a Cuban sandwich to this day. Um, first of all, they wouldn't call it a Cuban sandwich. Right. We, we don't call it necessarily an American hot dog or whatever. You know, I don't know. I'm trying to think of some an, an analogous thing, but you know, I mean, they have bread and they have things that go inside the bread. They certainly cannot afford pork and ham and Swiss cheese and all that. I mean, there's no way they can't, especially not today. So no, I can't see where that would be yet another reason why, why the current, you know, regime would not be able to, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable right now, in, in, you know, in the society. Well, and there's one one more thing to add to that too is that you know, um, the the regime in Cuba didn't really take much interest in it, in its in the food of the republic until tourism really became more important to the regime and to its survival. So, in the 21st century, especially, is when you start to see the Cuban government getting behind. So like, for example, the sloppy Joe has been reintroduced into Cuba. So that, that comes from Havana too. That's mentioned in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's this giant oversized like mound of picadillo on a big hamburger bun, you know, and you just look at this thing and it's like, it's like we've gone right back to the 1920s into a hungry Cuba with tourists eating these giant, you know, vulgar plates, plates of food. <laughs> so. Uh, but I think that is, you know, that's beginning, you know, right before the pandemic started, there was a restaurant that was specializing in Cuban sandwiches in Havana. And um, so, you know, that doesn't happen by accident. You know, the nothing happens without the approval of the regime there. So I think that they really want to give tourists something to bite on when they go besides sort of the foreign foods that are popular in Cuba or, you know, things that are served at Paladares, et cetera. So, you know, uh, in the 2010s, around 2009, 2010, somewhere in there, the Wall Street Journal and several other newspapers had sent journalists to go seek out the Cuban sandwich in its in its environment on the island, and they could barely find anything. So, um, so I think that that's changing now, and I think that they're co-opting you know the the food of old at least to serve to tourists. All right. Wow. So I'm going to wrap that. This is all fascinating. And for our listeners, I mean, this is just tip, touching the tip of the iceberg as to all the the history and goodness. And, and it, it'll make you want to eat. That's the thing. I was I was I remember reading it in downtown Tampa and thinking, man, I need to go to Ybor City now. It's just making me hungry when you read about food. I don't know. I'm like, it's it's like it's, it's, it's like a tease almost. But um, I uh, this is this this might be a hard question to answer. I know I I I um I tried to get Andy to answer this one a couple of years ago, and he kind of hedged. And Jeff, I know you might need to recuse yourself from this one too. I mean, maybe if you have conflicts of interest. But uh, I don't know who do you think who has the best Cuban sandwich to you? 
And you can name a city, a neighborhood, an establishment, a region. I don't know. I mean, however specific you want. I'm curious. Uh, well, I think the first answer is any anyone who appears in the book uh, that we interviewed, I think, are all solid bets. So I'll start there. Okay. <laughs> Very diplomatic of you. Yes. I think it's accurate. You know, it's, it's um, you know, we found so many great and compelling stories because we had had these sandwiches and had visited these places. And, you know, we're, we're not going to feature someone who makes a crap sandwich. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, sorry, I'm in Ybor City and the trains go by every 30 seconds if you hear that. It's a nice bit um, of local color. Yeah. Cool. You know, and, and the, the local roosters will be by in about 12 minutes. Um, <laughs> but the whole point is, is that everybody who puts so much thought into it ultimately comes to a very flavorful place, um, you know, uh, without picking sides and not wanting to, um, you know, we, we quite accurately say it the favorite cuban is wherever you are that you're enjoying it most um mm. you know and i have what i call mood cubans if i want the og i'm obviously going to go to the columbia if i want something big and sloppy and juicy and you know i want my shirt to look like a greasy shroud of turin i'm going to go to someplace else you know there are different size cubans in tampa uh, for different constituencies, there's one out by Interstate Four that all the Amazon trucks and all the cops are out there because it's meant to f you know fill you up for uh, a period of time, and you have to almost unhinge your jaw to get to it. And then there are others that are much more dainty and precise and and well uh, well crafted. Um, you know, again, Andrew Tambuzo, as we mentioned in the book, he doesn't call his a Cuban; he calls it a mixto. Mm -hmm. because he uses a mixture of of flavors that he grew up with which were sicilian and cuban and mm. you know if he were to go uh if he were to call it a cuban there would be an expectation and so he doesn't want to do that and as a result he honors the sandwich by not calling it a cuban but it kind of tastes like a, a sicilian cuban cuban mm. um you know you have to you have to respect somebody who puts that much thought into it um, you know, there's great stories in there, uh, from people in Ireland, um, people in Miami, um, all over the country, Las Vegas, you know, and everybody sort of adds their chapter to, uh, the story of the Cuban sandwich. And, um, not everybody, like I said, has access to the ingredients that people do when they live within the perimeter of say central Florida or Florida itself. But, um, you know, it's a very experiential sandwich and somebody who say had one, uh, you know, at night after a, a fairly rigorous amount of um, self-entertainment on the streets would have a different answer than somebody who is looking at it purely from a culinary aspect. I think that's a great part about the versatility of the sandwich. It's high end and low end, depending on where you go. That's exactly right. And so in addition to mood Cubans, you know, I'm going to add the, the words sentimental and nostalgia, because I think that um, as we've given talks on the book in various places, almost always someone comes up to us or sometimes they raise their hand during the, the talk and shares a very poignant story from their childhood or their adulthood. Mm -hmm. We've had people who with tears in their eyes recall when they used to eat it with their dad um, you know, every Saturday morning when they would go out, um, a, a woman who told us that her very 
best wine that she ever had was in this little mom and pop shop when she went away to college for the first time. And she had just fallen in love for the first time. And so she has that association with the sandwich. Um, so we've got all of those, you know, memories and, and emotions and reminiscences tied up with the sandwich. Um, uh, both Jeff and Andy know that for me growing up, the place that we, we didn't go out to eat much um, as a family, but when we did, it was at La Carreta, which is an old Miami restaurant right on Calle Ocho, right on 8th Street, almost directly across from Versailles, Versailles or Versailles as Cubans say, um, which is the shrine to all things Cuban in Miami, right? And it's the epicenter of even of politics in many ways. But this, this place called La Carreta was like just somehow like a notch below Versailles and, and more working class people went there, you know, and so that's where we went. But the, it was also right next to or very near to a funeral home that was also very popular in Miami. So I would go to La Carreta sometimes you know, on the way to movie, a movie or after a movie, but also went there with my parents when we went to go pay respects um, when someone had passed. And what would happen is that Cubans by and large are Catholic. And so there would be wakes. And if you're going to be awake for any length of time, a good, strong Cuban coffee will do the job. So you would go next door, get yourself, you know, una colada of Cuban coffee. While you're there, you might pick up a half a, a sandwich or full for that matter, take it back to the funeral home. So I've got all of these memories, you know, tied up with friends, with family, with funerals, you know, so sad times, happy times. How can you disambiguate all of that, you know, from the sandwich itself? Wow. Very well said. And, and like I said, very diplomatic answers from all you liked it. It was more philosophical, more, uh, you know, existential answers. I really enjoyed that. All right. So uh, before we leave, I'm curious, what uh, what else do you guys have going on now? Any projects moving forward? What uh, what work are you uh, planning? Not not necessarily collaboratively, but individually. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just working on some smaller projects right now. Nothing major, nothing really about food. I've got a fixation on ground glass poisoning. It's a long story, but talk about shifting gears, Andy. Wow. So I'm actually my, my current. Uh, project is I'm working on uh, a book on how to teach social studies to kids who don't speak English uh, for English language learners. So I'm working on that. That's kind of like my academic work, but I really like Andy's metaphor of food as a Trojan horse. So one of the things that he and I have talked about is um, writing a piece about using food to teach social studies because there's economics in there. There's history, there's geography, there's culture, there's politics. There's so many things, right? So that's going to be down the after he, after he finishes with the ground glass stuff. <laughs> we'll go back to this. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm currently available. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> well, well, it seems like you have the blueprint to do that already with a history and layers. I mean, uh, it certainly had that effect on me, or I, that's the impression I got from it. I, you know, Chris, I want to ask you, where's your favorite Cuban? You know what? I knew that was probably coming. Now you made me start thinking about it. Um, 
I don't I don't know if I can answer that. That's a very diplomatic answer, Chris. Well, this was it was interesting. There's two of them. Um, Maximilians and neither one of them are what we would consider traditional Tampa or Miami style ones. But again, maybe that's apropos of what we talked about. Yeah, Maximilians in Sarasota, they put little pepperoncinis on instead of pickles, which I thought was like we would, uh, you know, I teach at Ringling College of Art and Design. So we're down there. We would get them for our meetings. We'd sometimes get sandwiches there. And I just got, I just thought that was so cool. I would eat it. And now it's like I'm thinking, well, I guess I kind of associate that with something to look forward to in the middle of a long meeting. But, you know, like you're saying, it was experiential. But I, I did think that taste, it, it was a very, it made the sandwich taste so much different than I'm used to. So I kind of liked that. Um, and this food truck out of Clearwater, I think they're out of Clearwater. I haven't seen them in a while, called Docho's Concessions. They made this, it's very much a non-traditional Cuban sandwich. Uh, they called it the Monte Castro, which was, a, I don't know, an interesting choice of title. But they tried to model it after a Monte Cristo. It's taking like a the Tampa-style Cuban with the pressed bread, the salami, pickles, and then battering it and deep frying it and putting powdered sugar on it. And I'm telling you, that is like, I don't know, it, it's a stomach-warping experience. But man, in the moment, it was so good. Well, you talk about that, though. I got to tell you, I've had that sandwich. And last week, on the last day of the Florida State Fair, mm -hmm. I went to the fair because I had heard that there was a, a funnel cake Cuban sandwich being made. Oh. And and it reminded me of the Docho's one because the Docho's has the sugar on the outside. And the funnel cake is naturally kind of sweet. But then they drizzle a little bit of, of um, syrup on it. Um, Barb's daughter sent a video and... Um, Let's just say, it, it. you know how you used to put in a, a VHS tape or a DVD and it would spit it back out? Mm -hmm. That's what it looked like. Oh. I ate most of it um, because I couldn't really, uh, my, I was splitting it with my wife and, you know, uh, we eat differently. My wife eats in layers. I eat as a whole. And, you know, Grace, um, bless her heart, does CSI. Um, but I got to tell you. It was unique, and it, I think I even said at the time it reminded me of the sweetness of a Mede Noche. Um, I'm, I'm, I was impressed with the level that, uh, of preparation because anytime I don't care if it's whatever you're doing that's that's unique, but it did remind me of Dochos because of their sweetness. They they were one of the OG food trucks that has survived and done done well. Uh, in Tampa, you know, they started up probably in the late 2000s when the whole food truck thing blew up and they were constantly winning, you know, food truck awards and things like that. Um, and I think maybe we might need a food, uh, a funnel cake Cuban sandwich food truck. Now, what about the Columbia? Would we see that on the menu anytime there? Um, I believe the phrase is over my dead body. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, it seems more like a food. I, I, I mean this in no derogatory or denigrating way, but it seems more like a food truck food. <laughs> uh, you know, it does and it doesn't. Um, it's uh, that's uh, what versatility I was talking about earlier. You know, the Columbia within its own context, we all we do is tell stories through food, Tampa stories, the family stories, uh, cultural stories. And so it fits within that context to do an OG Rosetta Stone style sandwich. Uh, if I had a food truck, I'd be messing with it all day long. It, you know, <laughs> it's just there's something playful about it. Like I said, it allows for formal dining. It allows for street kind of, you know, get down and dirty kind of dining. Um, but it's, it's just a fantastic uh, sandwich when you look at the basic ingredients.
Well, and speaking of the Columbia, you know, one one pro tip for me anyway. I know Barbara likes to dip hers in cafe con leche, and that's a that's a popular thing. But I I love getting the the soup and salad combo at the Columbia, and that mm. dipping the beak of the sandwich in the cat in the in the, uh, the Spanish bean soup. I think they got the best Ooh. Spanish bean okay. soup in town. I don't think a lot of people put much work into it, and. Uh, so anyway, that's sort of my, I don't know, if I'm going to mix things up, that's that's how I'm going to do it. See, I never dipped a, I never dipped a Cuban in Café con Leche until Barb suggested it. And then I guess it was about three months ago, I did it for the first time, and the saltiness came out. I don't know what that was. I don't know whether it was the, the cream or if it was the caffeine or whatever, but the saltiness came out predominantly. So um, now I just want to dip it in everything and see what happens. Man, all right. This is this is again. It's just making me want to go get a sandwich or something. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. All right. Well, Jeff Hauk, Barbara Cruz, Andy Hughes, thank you for visiting the Florida Book Clubhouse. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for attending this meeting of the Florida Book Club. Butter and heat make everything better. Always remember that. There is a link to purchase the Cuban sandwich, a history in layers, on our website. And you can learn more about Andy, Barbara, and Jeff and their work and interests through this link. I don't know about you, but it makes me want to get a Cuban sandwich. So I hope you're fortunate enough to live in a place where you have a lot of them to choose from. And if you know where Docho's Concessions food truck is going to be, give me a heads up. For those interested in pursuing this delicious odyssey further, all three authors will be at the Tampa Bay Rum Company on April 15th at 6.30 p.m. to support the opening of Bookends, a new independent bookstore in Ybor City in Tampa. On that note, remember to support your local independent bookstores and public libraries. See you at our next meeting.